Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Welcome to all new listeners and returning listeners alike. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend, posting about it on social media, or leaving a rating or review wherever you get this podcast. You can also join the Friends of Yarn Stories Ravelry group, if that's more your thing, and thank you so much for listening. The first season of anything is a process of figuring things out, finding balance, and finding a voice. Part of my plan for this podcast has been to bring a diversity of voices to your attention. I think it's important to know that this yarn and fiber world of ours contains people of all backgrounds, all creeds, and all orientations, and that we really have more in common than we have differences. To that end, the next few guests will be men. This week's interview is with Jonathan Berner of MJ Yarns. Jonathan has a really interesting business model doing both a wholesale line and a completely different retail line with different bases and colorways. We also talk with an astonishing candor about the complexity of his dye techniques. So here's Jonathan. I'm here with Jonathan Berner, owner and mastermind of MJ Yarns, that is based in Seattle, Washington by the time this episode comes out. Uh, currently, he's still in Colorado and moving very shortly. Hey, yeah. Jonathan. Hey, how are you? Good. So tell me about your move. Well, I uh, my I initially came to Colorado because my sister was here with her kids and I wanted to be around to see them grow up. But she transferred to Seattle uh, back in April to be closer to my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've kind of had it in my my sights to move back there. Um, that's Washington is where I was raised. So it's yeah. it's kind of my physical home. And uh, I went back to visit for Christmas and, you know, just was reminded how great it is to have my family around. Um, I'm really lucky with my family and, uh, you know, remembered how much I like Seattle. And I frankly, I wasn't even going to look at studio space because I, I thought there was no way that I would be able to afford it. I mean, it's it's a disaster to find studio space in Colorado and yeah. Seattle's <laughs> just as bad. Um but uh, my sister's boyfriend slash brother-in-law, they're working on that. But uh, anyway, <laughs> he he started looking at uh, studios on Craigslist. And I was like, all right, why not? And so anyway, I was looking at him, found one that looked pretty good to me. And he kind of said, well, check this one out, too. And I was like, yeah, I saw that one. That one looks like a dump. Um, but sure, why not? <laughs> um, so I uh, I went and looked at both of them. And, and the one that I thought looked good was I mean, decent, but it was ridiculously expensive. Yeah. And the other one I looked at was a dump. Uh, it was, <laughs> um, it was pretty bad. But it's uh, six blocks from Pike Place Market. Um, it's eight hundred square feet, and that's great. The rent is only six hundred bucks a month. Whoa! And, in Seattle, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, including utilities. Awesome. Um, and well, you're gonna use I mean, a shit ton of water, so that's exactly and. and <laughs> I'm not kidding when when I say it's it's a dump. Uh, I mean it's it's really bad. But that is the perfect kind of space for me because yeah. I don't have to worry about getting dye on the yep. walls or no, you know I, I I need a shithole. That's that's <laughs> what I want. So um, I'm I'm super excited about it and to be able to be in the middle of downtown Seattle. Yeah, it's gonna be great. Um, 
Yeah, and uh, I'm actually going to stay with my sister for a while while I make sure that uh, everybody still loves me after I've moved to Seattle. And, <laughs> you know, I'm still making enough to survive. Yeah. And then once I'm comfortable and, uh, you know, kind of get caught back up after paying for all of the move, yeah. then, you know, I'll look at uh, getting an apartment down there. That's so, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's going to be great to have family support. Like, as a small business owner, family support is like, you can't beat it. Uh, it it <laughs> makes a huge difference. It really does. Yeah. And, you know, my dad's a business person, too. So it's it's nice to have somebody who I can bounce things off of um, with without worrying that I'm, like, giving away my secrets or anything like that. Yeah, that's great. Yep. And, uh, like I said, the studio is six blocks from Pike Place Market. I actually have an application in uh, oh, to, to be vendor. a seller nice. yeah, at Pike Place. And if your listeners um, aren't familiar with it, oh, Pike Place, is, yeah, I mean, it's it's really famous, but it's, um, you know, it's it's got a big farmer's market and mm-hmm. a butcher's area, fish, obviously. That's what yeah. it's famous for. The These fish really, tossing. Yeah, hot guys in overalls throwing fish. Uh, <laughs> but then on, on the north end of the market, there's uh, an artist's area. That's um, great. So yeah, I'm I'm hoping that I'll be able to get in there and sell my yarn to tourists from all over the world. That's awesome. So I actually was at a local yarn store that I don't really get to. Um, it's a little out of the way. It requires like a 45 minute train trip, but I needed to go to the quilt store that was right next to it. So like uh-huh. I swung through, and there was a bench full of your yarns. Hey, there you go. <laughs> like that was yesterday. <laughs> so I was like, oh, it's perfect. It's kismet. There you go. So you divide your yarn company into two sections. You've got the black label and the red label and different bases for each side. So can you tell me a bit about the division? Yeah. So uh, MJ Yarns initially began primarily as a wholesale company. Mm -hmm. And um, when you're a wholesaler, uh, yarn shops are purchasing yarn from you and uh, they don't want you competing against them. Um, And that's completely understandable. Yeah, it's a Um, tricky balance for a a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of um, indie dyers kind of end up selling their stuff retail and wholesale. Mm -hmm. Um, Eventually, it became clear that wholesale just wasn't enough to really thrive on. I mean, I was living, um, but, you know, I've I, I haven't gotten to the point where I feel like I'm making enough money to be comfortable, yeah. you know, um, and, and that's important. Too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, I, I came out with the red label yarn with the idea that it would be completely separate and completely different from the black label. Mm-hmm. So the red label is only available at my online store, mjyarns.com. And like I said, they're totally different bases, totally different colors. Mm-hmm. And what's been really cool to see with that is that it's actually kind of created this positive feedback loop where customers will come and get red label and, you know, they fall in love with it. And they mm-hmm. and I say, well, if you really like that, go check out your local yarn shop yeah. because they have my really cool black label stuff. Mm-hmm. So That's I great. actually end up, yeah, the, the Driving stores. Driving traffic have, to those local yarn stores. Exactly. The stores that have really bought into the idea have seen an increase in traffic because the red label has allowed me to uh, get out a little bit more, to be uh, a little bit more face to face and yeah. uh, and provide enough money that I am uh, I'm surviving well enough so that the black label side uh, can. Keep can going. Oh, yeah, exactly. So um, for people who are not that familiar with business, uh if you're selling wholesale, say your price point, you know, for for a product like your widget is like a dollar. That's how much you pay to make it. 
if you are selling it wholesale and you want this, you know, the widget to sell for like $6, then you need to sell it for three Exactly. to the, to the local yarn store. So you'd make $2 on, you know, on your widget. Exactly. But if you're selling a $6 widget that costs you $1 to make directly to the re- to the consumer, then you make $5 exactly. on your widget. So it's, you know, that's a little like business 101. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and, and that's so there's the a higher, a higher uh, return for your red label than on your black. Yeah. And so I really don't have to sell that much red label. Yeah to make a dramatic difference in my profit and income level. Yeah. Um, because the, the way the numbers end up working out for me, the, the retail margins are 10 to 15 times higher. Yeah. Um, so imagine if you could do the same work, but make 10 times as much. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Like you should definitely do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that's just good business sense. But yeah. um, so you've got different bases and like, so the bases for the black label are pretty standard. They're like, you know, you've got some like superwash merino and some like merino nylon blend sock yarn and stuff like that. They're pretty, uh, you know, normal bases for yarn. Uh, the thing that really excited me was the red label and your Colorado Pure line. Yeah, and that's actually a limited edition. So if what you see on my website is the inventory numbers is what there's going to be, yeah. we will probably re- release something different, another, you know, another Colorado Pure blend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, the the Colorado Pure that we've got now as it is is really just a one-time yeah. thing. Well, because you've got, you know, the shearing. Yeah, exactly. It was it was a really challenging project to figure out how to make all that happen because there's no Google, there's no Amazon yeah. for a bale of wool. You know, no. there's there's no Amazon for getting wool milled uh, or turned into yarn, you know. So yeah. I uh, I really had to start just with making those connections. Once you get this low into the industry where you're actually going from dirt to yarn, yeah. Uh, yeah, you really have to meet people. people. Yeah, talk to people, make connections, and you know, once you meet the person who knows the people, then you're then you're in. And there there always yeah. is. There's a person who knows everybody, but yeah. you have to find that person. Um, yeah. So eventually, I, I uh, met uh, Yampa Valley. Uh, Fiberworks. They're up in Craig, Colorado. And uh, they were able to connect me with a grower who's on the western slope of Colorado. He raises sheep free range. So they're just kind of out in the fields. He's, uh, yeah, he's had it in his family for generations. And I was able to buy uh, 400 and some pounds from him of wool, uh, which. uh, So you've got like his year's clip. Exactly. Um, well, and actually, that was just his ram clip. Um, oh, okay. He turns over several thousand pounds of wool Ooh. a year. Yeah. Nice. So he's he's a big operation. He actually sells his lambs to Whole Foods. Okay. Um, so, so so is he putting the rest of it into the wool market? Yeah, um, and they call it the wool pool. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then so, people buy, you know, like big big buyers buy, um, you know, buy the bale, and they just put everybody's clip together yep. and uh, and sell it that way. Yep. And he does actually have some connections with mills around the country as well who purchase direct from him. Oh, that's great. Yep. Um, so they're both 100% Colorado Merino, and it sounds like they're like Merino Rams. Yep. Solely. So Yampa Valley, are they a mill or? Yes. Okay. So are you having the yarns milled there? This yarn was not milled at Yampa Valley. Um, okay. I'm hoping to do this year's project with them. 
Um, I ended up sending this wool up to Mountain Meadow Wolves in oh, yeah. Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Um, it's close enough to Colorado. Yeah, seriously. exactly. Um, it's it, it was a similar amount of drive time to get up there. Um, yeah. But uh, the the ram's fleece is a little bit challenging to deal with. It's uh, yeah. it's a lot more greasy um, yeah. than a regular sheep's, uh, well, a used wool. So mm-hmm. um, Mountain Meadow Wool has a scouring train that made it a lot easier for them to clean. And even, yeah, even they still sense. had to send it through twice to... Yeah. get the fiber all clean so well in, in in previous episodes we've talked about the difficulty of having um having you know making it worth a while worthwhile for a mill to do you know a single bale of wool or like a small batch run of yarn yeah. and mountain meadow is is used to that sort of thing like they do that sort of thing yeah so. they really do i um, when I was up there, he was spinning, I mean, a fleece or two for somebody. And I oh, was I was shocked. That's yeah. way small batch. Yeah, wow. exactly. I, I really was shocked because they have a spinning frame that can do, I mean, a tremendous amount of yarn at a time, yeah. something like 40 bobbins. Um, yeah. uh, you know, so they, they can run big production. Uh, so for them to be taking small little one fleece jobs was, uh, <sighs> frankly, I was impressed that they're willing yeah. to do it. but. That, you know, that's got to be a dedication to to the principle of the thing and not a business decision. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? Because the setup of, of the spinning frames and the whole mill setup is time consuming. And it's got to be, they've got to be like, you know, doing it for the love of doing it. Yeah. And, and not for, you know, cost effectiveness of a single fleece exactly. or two. The the owners of Mountain Meadow Wool are really great people. And Yampa, yeah. Yampa Valley, too. They're uh, well, in, in general, people in this business tend to be good. Um, it's true. And, and we also tend to be a little bit crazy and outside of the norm, but <laughs> frankly, that's what I that get along with. True. <laughs> yeah. So the current selection was milled at uh, Mountain Meadow. Huh? And then the next year, you're looking to mill it at Yampa. Huh? So how's this going to change with you moving? Well, um, being in Seattle, I'm probably going to start looking at redeveloping that network of connections out there um, mm-hmm. for fleeces and mills and figuring out what mills are good and, and yeah. what mills can handle the kind of volume. Because there are some mills where you say, I want a bale of wool spun and it's like, oh my gosh, there's that's a lot of work. You know, 400 pounds can overwhelm a small yeah. mill. So anyway, figuring that out. And I, I would like to come out with a Washington line. Um, That'd be great. Yeah. But for the meantime, I mean, I'm I'm born in Colorado as far as my business is concerned. And yeah, it's got your heart. Yeah, exactly. So I would like to keep that spirit alive. And I don't see any reason why a Colorado line shouldn't continue with the business. Yeah, that makes sense. So you specifically use short color runs to make your multi-yarns read more like impressionist paintings. Um, it makes them really great to knit for those of us who hate pooling and flashing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how did you come to that dye technique? Well, when I started designing yarn, um, this was in 2013, um, I had actually been knitting with some Dream in Color, and I will say their name because I respect and love their colorways. Yeah. Uh, they, they are fantastic, and just every inch of the yarn was this discovery and fascinating mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
realization of what the yarn was doing. Um, yeah. And that yarn also had those just short color runs, just little flecks of color. Mm -hmm. uh, so I that, love knitting with stuff like that. Yeah, so that when you step back, the, uh, the piece has kind of an overall color impression. But the yeah. closer you get, the more depth and intensity yeah. there is in each skein. Um, mm -hmm. So, well, and each stitch becomes like a little, you know, happy surprise. Exactly. Like, you know, oh, I've got three stitches that are kind of this blue, and then I've got this pop of like green, you know, and yep. just that one stitch like brings you a little bit of joy. Yeah, exactly. And when you're a knitter, you know, spending so much time with this yarn, I, I think it's important to have that bit of excitement and, and surprise as you're working yeah. with it. Uh, so I really wanted to find a way to dye that captured that. So I, you know, looked around and at the time there weren't really any great dye books that went through all of the techniques. And frankly, yeah. there, there still aren't any that go in depth to the dye books or, or yeah. to the dye techniques. Although, uh, Felicia Lowe came out with a great dye book. Um, can't remember the name of the book. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes. Dying, dying to Spin and Knit. I th oh, mm, nice. Mm, that might not be it. That might be another book. Anyway, you can look that up. <laughs> we'll and find put it. it. In the I'll show find notes. it and I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> All right. Uh, so anyway, uh, that being said, I came across this little YouTube video of a woman um, using a technique uh, that made me go, yes, that's it. That's what I mm -hmm. want to do. Um, and it's, of course, the most labor-intensive technique. And, of course it is. Because um, you get something really, really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so... And, and I guess I should clarify um, that I'm describing now my black label multi-dyes. Uh, yes. So we, we have several different dye techniques that we use here depending on uh, which line and which dye technique uh, is yeah. actually being applied to it. So with the, the multi-dyes, and that's what we started with, um, it's actually a tie-dye technique. Um, okay. But instead of using rubber band or string, we're using the yarn itself to create the resists. Okay. So we might put the yarn in the pot just open so it gets an all-over coat. And then we'll pull the yarn out and we might uh, put some slip knots in it or twist it up in a skein like you might oh, see in the shop. And then put it back in the pot. And oh, then that's cool. um, we repeat that process anywhere between four and six times. Ooh, um, but that's labor intensive. Exactly, exactly. So uh, a typical dye bath from start to finish is typically eight to ten hours. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, and then per person, we do four of those dye baths uh, each day. So per person per day, we do 40 skeins. Um, mm -hmm. So if we have two of us working in the studio, we might do 80, or if we're working really hard, we might do up to 120 skeins a day. Wow. Um, yeah, but it is, it's lots of work. And of course, after the first batch, or after the first layer, the yarn's hot. So mm -hmm. now you're working with hot, steamy yarn with um, yep. the, the food gloves that you would normally use to pull out pulled pork. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it's, uh, it's a special person that, that can love doing it. Um, yeah. but you know, fortunately I, I have one of those and I'm pretty sure he's going to move out to Seattle once I'm established out there too. Oh, so great. yeah. Well, that's going to be, that's going to be like really, really intense, especially because I imagine each different colorway is going to be a different set of steps of how you twist the yarn or how you, yeah, everyone, you know what I mean? Like that's, yep, everyone is different. There's, um, I think I can think of two colors that have essentially the same process. 
wow. All, but the rest yeah, of them are all different. All, all the rest. It's it's all different sets. And there's, I mean, there's so many, each color really has its own personality. It um, does, yeah. So the colors, um, they, they actually, I hate to say it, they improve with time. Um, <laughs> so, uh, for instance, um, Cerulean Twilight is my most popular blue color. It has, uh, on the third layer, a relatively open run where it's only got a couple of slip knots in it. Um, mm-hmm. And we discovered that the color does a lot better if we actually cool the pot down. Uh, oh. So we have to remember like after... It, like it absorbs better? It, it absorbs more slowly. Okay, uh, got it. So when the water's more cool, the dye has more time to relax to and exhaust, spread yeah. around. Um, so we figured out that uh, if we turn the pot off uh, after the second color and let the, the water cool down, then that third color has a better chance to kind of fill in the gaps and we get... Um, it, it ends up being just uh, a much nicer finished product. Um, that is seriously complicated, dude. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, if if I am willing to accept the term artistry in any of this, it's definitely around that process where, yeah. you know, I feel like um, I've developed a really in-depth knowledge where you, you couldn't describe it to someone. You couldn't put it in a book. Um, I mean, even if you did, it wouldn't make enough sense that somebody would be able to reproduce it. They, they just have to get in and do it um, yeah. and really experience what the yarn does and what each individual colorway does and how those colors are going to react and interact. Um, yeah. And and I guess on top of all of that, it changes from yarn base to yarn base. Different yarn yeah. bases accept the color differently too. So mm-hmm. um, sometimes the yarn bases want a little bit different treatment. Wow. Yeah. That's intense. <laughs> <laughs> so your so that's specifically the the black label that people can find at their local yarn store. Yep. Those are the that's the multi technique for the black label. Yep. Okay, so um, going to your red label a little, your semi-solid colorways are named after gemstones, uh-huh. and your kettle dyes, or, you know, like mostly solid, are named after the gem shapes and cuts like Briolette and Jubilee. Um, so how did you come to these names? Do you have a background in like gemstones or jewelry? You know, I don't, but when I was designing the red label side, and red label is really fun because I designed all of the colors, all 25 or 26 colors at once. So yeah. the palette to be is, a cohesive whole. Exactly. It's, it's, it's set up so that you can pick really any two colors and they're probably going to work together in some yeah. way. Um, so when I was designing that palette, I was taking my dog on lots of walks. Um, here in Lafayette, we have a lake about a mile west of me that uh, I often walk down to and we do a lap around the lake. And at the time of year, the time I was walking, um, the sun was setting uh, pretty frequently. So I was seeing these sunsets that have this fascinating blend of cool and warm. Right? So, like it's magic. Yeah. You know, cool and warm don't generally, you know, mesh so well, but in sunsets, they're amazing. Exactly. So you have, you know, the warm sunlight coming behind this cloud, but on the face of the cloud, you have this dark, dark blue pushing through. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that particular color I captured in azurite. Um, mm-hmm. So that's my darkest blue color. And uh, in that color, there's actually orange that's inside of it. Yeah. So. 
most of the colors in um, my red label yarn actually have their complement or something close to their complement, which is to say the color across the color wheel um, blended in. So like the red actually has green in it. The green has red in it. Um, so that, that sunset inspired all of it. And then when I was trying to figure out um, how to name it, I... Uh, you know, it, it was all kind of living in this earthy area. That's when you blend complements, you end up with slightly earthy colors. Yeah. Slightly muted because we, you'll, uh, they cancel each other out a little bit and make it grayer. Exactly. Uh, so I, um, I just kind of had the earth on my mind. And mm -hmm. gemstones are a rich source of color names um, and a rich source of color types. So yeah. I, I decided that that was going to be the way to go. Well, and in Colorado, there's a whole history of mining as well. So I'm in Utah, which is just over the Rocky Mountains. So same kind of, you know, vibe, same kind of terrain. Yep. Um, yeah. Mining is a huge thing Yep. for all of our, you know, both of our states. Yep. That's Lafayette, where I live, was actually founded on coal mining. Um, mm -hmm. And in my black label, one of my solid colors uh, for that is called Lafayette. And it's a coal black, oh, uh, nice. coal black gray. So... Yep. We, we, well, in Boulder, I'm in Boulder County was founded because of mining deposits in the mountains. Yep. So. Yeah. I've got mostly, uh, here I've got mostly metal. Um, so there's copper mine, like there's the biggest, like, yeah. huge, you know, <laughs> like pit strip mining yeah. that you can see from space, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's here in my valley. <laughs> um, and park city was based on silver. Excellent. So you are one of the rare men in this industry. How do you find that? Um, well, it, I think it's actually been an advantage, mm -hmm. although I've had to learn to be comfortable with myself too, uh, to, because when I walk in a yarn shop, I always get the, oh, are you lost look? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I quite intentionally, when I'm walking into a yarn shop or a, a new knitting place, uh, make sure that I have my knitting bag with me and or something I've knit around my neck and yeah. you know uh, it's the just secret to, signs yeah exactly to say like look I'm real or yeah. um even just to prove that I'm legit like look at this lace that I'm working on mm -hmm. and and show them you know like yes he is a real knitter and he he is does our have people. some yeah he has some idea of what he's talking about yeah. um but once once I pass that initial moment and I know some guys do kind of hold a grudge about that I don't think many of them do but some of the more sensitive of us males get a little hurt anyway I I understand so anyway once I'm established I'm at that point kind of a minor celebrity because I am a guy yeah it's um, interesting comes, yeah comes into a knitting shop so uh, when I started this business, I found it to be relatively easy. I mean, I, I had actually one shop told me that part of the reason they were ordering is because they thought it was cool that I was a dude. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and they wanted to support me in that. And all of the yarn shop owners in my area knew me, yeah. you know, and they knew me by name because I was the guy who came into the <laughs> shop every other week. Yeah. So it's been a good way for me to set myself apart a little bit and yeah. to be something different in addition to my spectacular colors and yarn. Yeah. But, you know, in a, in a field where like there's so many indie dyers, anything that sets you apart is a business advantage. Yeah, absolutely. 
absolutely. And it is, it's important to have something that, that makes you different and unique yeah. beyond just, you know, a different name. Yeah. Cool. So um, you're also a gay man. That is true. Is that... Uh, Single gay man, I should point out. <laughs> <laughs> so any similarly minded dudes out there, if you're hot, hit him up. <laughs> so how has that been in this industry? Frankly, it's been good. I There's not too many straight guys. I admire the straight guys that knit because they're, you know, definitely the, the outside fringe of the knitting world. Um, yeah. They're, That's true. <laughs> the, yeah, the the gay men's knitting community is really pretty tight. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm friends with most of them on Facebook. So you would like to? Well, you've been generous enough <laughs> to <laughs> give us a skein of Colorado Pure. Do you want to do worsted or fingering? Um, I'd like to give the fingering. I think it's That's spectacular. Great. Yeah. Well, and fingering is really so versatile. You know, yeah. like blend it with something else with a different color and all that stuff. Yeah. So, um, because Colorado Pure is you know, the one clip and that's it. Uh, they will need to choose from what is available yep. <laughs> rather than having something custom dyed to a particular color. So uh, if you want to, if you want to enter for that giveaway, just uh, go to the show notes at yarnstoriespodcast.com. And uh, thank you, Jonathan, for offering to give that away. That's yeah, great. you're welcome. That's, you know, I, I'm definitely a yarn evangelist. Um, yeah. <laughs> and most knitters become that at some point in one way or another, but yeah. you know, I, I love getting people into it and, and letting them know about new and different yarns. The, the Colorado pure is great because it's a, it's, it's not super wash. It's got a little bit more of a rustic spin to it. Mm-hmm. So it's not the kind of smooth and slimy yarn that kind of yeah. most of us are used to it's yeah. it's um it it's has tooth yeah exactly and it has just that little bit of a homemade look where mm-hmm. it could have been hand spun uh yeah. so anyway i like adding hand spun to commercial yarn in my in my knitting i also number one because it makes the the hand spun go farther yeah <laughs> you know so i don't have to spin like i ha- i have spun whole garments worth there's a whole oh, like God article in the offing for spinoff that I'm writing. Um, but you know, sometimes you just spin something cause it's pretty and then you want to make something and you don't want to spin more or you can't find more. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, there's a question that I ask everybody in the first season, what would be your everyday superpower? So I thought a lot about this and I think my everyday superpower is that I am kind of a dog whisperer, um, <gasps> or yes. maybe not a dog whisperer, but a dog controller. Okay. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm an alpha and, yeah. and dogs sense it. Um, when I come in the room, dogs know like, okay, I have to do what this guy says. Yeah. Uh, and I actually, I had to learn how to tone myself down when I got my dog because oh, she, no. <laughs> she is such a beta. Her entire <laughs> life is how do I please Jonathan? How do I do what he wants? How do I make him happy? Um, and I realized like, okay, I can't treat her like I would normally treat a dog. When yeah. I, I uh, had left her in the car for a little bit and she found some garbage, right? And she got into it and I came yeah. back and I looked at her when I got back to the car and oh. I, I, I pointed my finger at her and said, no. And just firmly said no. I, I, I wasn't like you were yelling, moving to hit her. Yeah, yeah. like I wasn't. My I'm I'm sure my voice just was just showing firm. your displeasure. Exactly. 
and she started to shake. Oh, baby. Yeah, exactly. So um, she's been good for me learning how to um, be uh, just very gentle and very um, positive based and um, very, very loving to make sure that she knows it's okay. So if this whole yarn thing doesn't work out, you could be a dog trainer. (laughs) They'd all listen to you. I I could try that. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, your dog, what kind of dog is she? She's a blue healer and bull terrier. I could email you a picture. She's, oh my gosh, she's the cutest. And she is the best dog on the world, in the world. Uh, And I know everybody says that, but mine actually is. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, I'll fully admit that my cats are assholes. (laughs) So... Yeah, I mean Riley. She she listens like you wouldn't believe. She, um, I mean she. I, I meant it when I said that she lives to serve me and to do what yeah. I want. Um, and she's you is know, she a rescue? Yeah, she came through the Rocky Mountain Puppy Rescue. Mm. Um, they're a fantastic rescue that brings dogs up from a reservation outside of Albuquerque, and okay. uh, they kind of import the dogs into Colorado, where there's more people who want the dogs as opposed yeah. to people who kind of just have the dogs. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah, and and more people who have them as pets rather than like animals that live on you know their exactly. land. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I, I lucked awesome. out. I'll never be able to have another dog. She's She's ruined me for dogs. I'll never have another one that that can satisfy me like she does. <laughs> oh, she sounds adorable. She's great. I love dogs. I grew up with dogs. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you, Jonathan. This has been great. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. found that interview as interesting as I did. I wonder if perhaps Jonathan's red label yarns and the profit margins from selling direct to consumers on that line really allow him to do such a labor-intensive dye technique on the black label. A lot of dyers have to face the reality of wanting to do a more intense technique, but needing to keep up with production and labor cost management. So thank you again to Jonathan for talking with me. I've got the giveaway for Colorado Pure Fingering from MJ's Red Label line up on yarnstoriespodcast.com. And thank you again to Jonathan for offering that up for you all. Jonathan's also given us a code for free shipping, so go ahead and check that out. That's in the show notes. Now we're going to talk to Ben Hostetler from Mountain Meadow Wool, the mill that makes the Colorado Pure lines for MJ Yarns. Mountain Meadow Wool occupies a really interesting place in U.S. mills. It's larger than a lot of the small mills that run batches from hobby flocks, but it's still smaller than the big commercial mills. It allows them to do a really wide variety of production runs. It was a really interesting conversation, and you'll definitely be hearing from Ben again in the future. So here's Ben. I'm here with Ben Hostetler, who is the operations manager of Mountain Meadow Wool in the northeast corner of Wyoming. Hey, Ben. Hey, Miriam. So will you tell me a little bit about uh, about your mill, about Mountain Meadow Wool? Yeah, so we this is our 10th year of, of uh, operating. So, uh, we well, we they started the idea for the mill about well, 15 years ago. It took about five years to do all the planning and uh, background work to get the mill started. Yeah. But 10 years of production this year, uh, we're family-owned. So, I work here with my mom and my wife and my dad and a sister. So, um, That's fun. a lot of fun family camaraderie, I guess, we get to have here at the mill. Yeah. I always tell people I have a pretty good boss working for my mom. It's actually kind of fun. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so we're, we've been here Operation 10 years. We do a lot of custom work. Uh, we're a really weird scale in the industry. Yeah. Uh, 
there's a lot of there's probably 50 60 mini mills in the country mm-hmm. and we're roughly 10 times bigger than most of the small mini mills but maybe 100 times smaller than the than large the commodity ones. mills yeah yeah so. well it puts you in a really unique position because a lot of the a lot of the big mills won't take on the smaller jobs and a lot Correct. of the small mills can't handle the jobs that like you know a, like a custom run from you know a yarn company Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll get the gamut though. We'll get, um, you know, eight pound fleece coming in and they want that one fleece process. So we'll Mm do custom processing down to eight pounds. It's not, we're not very efficient at that small scale. Um, our ideal would be 50 to a hundred pounds would be our ideal minimum. Yeah. And then once you get above 200 pounds of incoming fiber, that's where we can start to see some good processing efficiencies. That makes sense. Yeah. So, um, for people who are not familiar with the milling process, can you take us through the steps? Sure. It's a pretty fun process. Um, yeah. If you've seen, you know, raw wool, you, you look at a, a clip of or a lock of raw wool and you've got a lot of grease, a lot of dirt, um, some Vegetable vegetation matter. on that. Mm-hmm. And so the goal of the process is just to remove all of that and get those fibers to be um, in somewhat of a, a structure that you can create yarn with. And yeah. so the first stage uh, when that fiber comes in um, and we'll do, you know, small custom jobs with a lot of unique breeds of sheep. Yeah. Um, but about 60%, 70% of our business is fiber we source usually in larger quantities. Yeah. Um, so there's a little more consistency in the larger lots. Um, but either way, though, the small lots or the large lots, you open up those bales of fiber or boxes of fiber or small trash bags of fiber, depending <laughs> on how it came into the yeah. mill. Uh, you open up that fiber. The first stage is our skirting table. Mm-hmm. And so we'll throw it on a table. Um, and it's just, uh, I've seen people who make their own tables on their own ranch or operation with chicken wire or, or just something to throw that fleece on there and get yeah. a good look at it. And let anything it, gross fall out. Like Exactly. Quite frequently, there are like dingleberries on the ass end of the yep. sheep and <laughs> there's yep. all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, manure tags. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're looking for... Uh, lots of vegetation, so sometimes sheep are going to be rubbing into, oh, a hay bale or straw, and they've got a lot of vegetation, and, and we're going to pick that out by hand. Yeah, and depending on where they're ranging, they could like have all sorts of stuff like cockleburrs and exactly things like that stuck right around their neck or on their underbelly. Yeah, don't say cockleburrs. That's a bad word around here. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> bad, bad, bad. You want to keep those yeah. out of your sheep pasture. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> cockleburrs are a pain. We, we pick them out by hand just because oh. they crush into all the machinery. Yep. Um, but you can't get them all out if we're doing a large lot. And so no. you're going to get them to start crushing into the machinery. And it just takes a little bit of extra time cleaning up. Yeah. But yeah, so we'll pick through that fiber. We're looking for second cuts sometimes during shearing mm-hmm. um, when they, so, you know, sheep are all moving around while they're shearing. And so they may miss a spot and have to go back through and cut it again to get it a little closer to the skin. And yeah. that's a second cut. And so it's a... The staple length is too short. Uh, the goal is a yeah. three and a half inch lawn fiber. And they've taken that three and a half inch lawn fiber and cut it down to two inch and a half fibers or a couple inch fibers. And yep. we need to get those removed because they create inconsistencies in the yarn. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll pick those out. Usually a good shake of the fleece. We'll get a lot of the dirt and some vegetation coming out and yeah. a lot of those short fibers. And then onto the scouring line it goes. Um, and so scouring is, is the first wash that uh, yeah. should help get the lanolin out of the wool as well. Correct. Yeah. So typically on a fine wool, uh, 50% of the weight is dirt and grease. Wow. On a coarser wool, you might get about 30% be yeah. dirt and grease. 
Um, so there's a, just a lot of dirt and a lot of grease. And the scouring line, we open up that fiber um, to open up those fibers so they're not packed together. Mm-hmm. And it goes through five bowls. And, and the concept for washing is, I tell people, very similar to washing a dirty potter pan in your sink. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a dirty potter pan, you put some Dawn detergent in the sink, and that detergent, basically what it does is it's encapsulating the grease on the pan. Mm -hmm. And then the force to remove it is someone's hand with a wash rag on it to physically remove that grease. And then these wool fibers are very similar. They've got grease along the length of the fiber, Mm -hmm. and you put in a little detergent in there, and that encapsulates the grease. And then we have what are called squeeze presses. They look like the old arena washers. Oh, yeah. It's a lot more mechanical and industrial in scale. And those provide the force to actually physically squeeze the grease off of the fiber. Got it. Yeah. So cool. So it a, goes through five different different wash. Yep, five different bowls. Sessions. Each bowl has a little different process to it. So the first bowl is low temperature, and we're getting the dirt off of the fiber. Yeah. The next two bowls are high temp wash bowls, and we're getting the grease off. And then two rinse bowls. Cool. Uh, so then you go on to, uh, are you doing combing or carding or both? We do both. Um, so awesome. we call one of our yarns would be, you know, fully worsted, which we'll go through the comb. And mm-hmm. then we'll call our yarn our, our semi-worsted yarn where we're not going to comb it, but we'll still go through the, the gilling or pin drafting stage to align those fibers. Got it. Okay. Uh, so then do you guys also do the spinning? Yep. So we spin for here some as well. things. Yep. Yes. Yep. That's what I thought. Yeah. So not not for everything. So uh, nope. depending on exactly what the finished yarn they're looking for is, it might be outside of the range of what you what your mill is able to do. Correct. We'll probably spin internally ninety eight percent of our of the yarn that goes through. Okay. Um, for some of your fine fine apparels, um, so it'd be your base layer apparel apparels or your performance sock industry. Mm-hmm. Um, usually they, you have to have pretty fine, um, yarn spun for that. And so we'll send it out to yeah. another facility to get spun into those fine, fine yarns. Cool. So do you have a staple length range that you can handle? Yeah, we can do about 2.7 inches, somewhere around that ballpark, 2.7 yeah. to, oh, six, eight, 10 inch. Um, oh, I've wow. gotten so you can, in do the, some, you can do the long wools. Yeah. We've gotten some, oh, caracal sheep, um, that weren't shorn, um, for two years, and so it came oh, probably wow. oh twenty inches or so. That's um, too long. Yeah, it's pretty long. <laughs> the thing about those, those lawn wools is, at some point, those fibers are going to break during production, just because yeah. the mechanical forces that act on those fibers are going to break those fibers, and so yeah. you'll end up with a lot of six-inch fibers. Okay, um, and that's definitely a, a hand a doable range in our process. That's cool. Yeah. So, um, if somebody had a fleece that was a was a much finer wool, like a merino, uh, generally is, um, or a shorter staple, like a two inch staple, then you would need to send it to somewhere else. You could do the you could do the cleaning and the processing before that, but you couldn't spin it. Yeah, correct. And, okay. and typically, you know, uh, your, your small, your shorter staples, your two inch staples are typically done on a woolen system. Yeah. Um, and that way, you can create a woolen spun yarn, which you don't need to have the length of the fiber to create. Yeah. Um, and again, for people who may be new to this, woolen is generally um, starts with a carded uh, setup. So basically, like the wool is is sort of all different directions. It makes a very lofty yarn that has a lot of air in it, yep. um, which can be you know really insulating and good for that. But a worsted is done with a combed top. So the combs align all the fibers in the same direction so that when they are spun, it's much more silky, dense yarn. Correct. Yeah. 
Yeah. Specifically, um, I want to talk about the Colorado Merino that you were doing for Jonathan. Sure. So he said that uh, they're Merino rams. So what's, what was the staple length like for them? Oh, they were coming in. You, you've got a pretty good staple length on a ram in general. So yeah. you're at least at a three and a half to, and, and probably closer to a four inch staple on a lot of so the rams. So if they had been Merino ewes rather than Merino rams, they might have been too short a staple. Yeah, it depends. Um, you, they're, they're probably half inch shorter. Um, it's not yeah. or three quarters of an inch shorter. So you'll still get a good three to three and a half inch average. Okay, that, so it might have still worked. Yeah, that would have still worked. Okay. So uh, they're specifically from Colorado, so it's not very far from you. Right. And um, and he said that they're very grease heavy. Yeah, typically in, in rams fleeces in general. Um, and you can imagine uh, in most animal breeds, uh, the male or the ram is usually a larger animal. Um, yeah. And they've got a lot more, you know, their hormones and whatever are running in that yeah. animal. Usually there's well, a just, lot of other... Um, I kind of equate it to teenage boys. Yeah. You know, like teenage boys really, really need deodorant more than anybody else on the planet. Exactly. So, you know, like it's probably the same for, for uh, full testosterone sheep rams. Yeah. They probably have a lot of like extra secretions. Exactly. Yeah. They come in a, li- <laughs> a little bit dirtier in general. Um, yeah. So it's just uh, a little more challenging oftentimes to run a ram fleece through the process. Um, so do you end up doing an extra wash with them or? Yes, we, we do. And in this case, we did. Um, uh, it also depends on how long the fiber has been sitting. Um, just because okay. of the extra, like you said, you know, the extra secretions on a ram. If they've been sitting there for a year or two years in a bag, um, it, it's just a lot harder to get that, that contaminant off the fiber. And yeah. so um, I think those fleeces have been sitting around for a little while that we ran for Jonathan. And so we had just to wash it twice just to make sure we get all those, that makes it, sense. and really get the color right too, to get the, um, the staining off the fiber. Yeah. Uh, so the grease, if for, if you, if you haven't touched a, a raw fleece, um, the grease holds, holds a bunch of dirt. So like you can even see, like if you're looking at the strata along the staple length of a sheep, you can see like, oh, this was the wet season where they got a little muddy. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So uh, for, for anybody who has not done this, that is, it's pretty satisfying to wash a fleece and, and you know, it, like it looks kind of gross and dirty and, you know, a little, little brown. And then you wash it and it can be like snowy white. Yeah. Yeah, it's very similar to, you know, an archaeologist they're going to go through or a geologist they're going to go through layers of soil yep. and determine, oh, this is what happened at this period in time. And we're going to do the same with a fleece. It's just on a year yep. increment. And so, oh, this time of the year, maybe a little bit of a drought or, yep. um, you know, and, and drought speaking, of, that's probably one of the, the most critical things for us is if there was something, especially on a yearling fleece. So when those lambs are born and yeah. they go out onto the range or out on the ranch, um, mm-hmm. any kind of environmental stress can cause a weak yes. point in that fiber. And that, and those weak points, we call them Are tender. The fiber will break. And, yep, yeah. and the fiber will break, and you create a lot of short fibers. So we'd look for that. Usually the ram's fleeces are, are uh, immune to that, though. They're pretty strong on longer fibers. Yeah, so they're hardy. Good, good ram fleeces. Okay. Other than having, like, a you know specific maybe second wash to get them really clean. Uh, were there any other challenges to dealing with the Colorado Merino rams? 
Um, merinos in general, you're going to have typically uh, a finer micron. So the micron is just mm-hmm. the diameter of the fiber. Yeah. Um, the lower the micron, usually the softer on your skin. So most of your merino breeds, your merino genetics are going to be finer wools. Yeah. Um, so they're going to be soft on your skin, but you have a little less strength in the individual fibers. And so yeah. um, it's more of a breed than just a, a, the ram or the U. It's just a, more of a breed characteristic. Yes. But weaker fibers, you tend to get more nets and pills. Um, when it goes through carding, yeah. you just get more breakage of those fibers. Yeah. So uh, in previous episodes, we've talked about that, you know, the more ends you have um, per inch, the more ends you have sticking out per inch. And then the the uh, the more likely it is to pull pill in a finished yarn, right. that sort of thing. Right. So you get a lot of if you, the, if you have broken fibers, you also get a lot of ends sticking out. Yeah, correct. And so that'd be kind of one of the challenges on just the merino genetics in yeah. processing. Um, it, that, and that's why historically most of your finer wools are going to be combed and you make a fully combed yarn. Mm-hmm. Um, what we did then with, all the fibers are parallel. Yep. And you've removed all the short ones. So if anything yep. did break during carding, you remove anything that's less than an inch long. And so you get a little overall longer average of your staple length. Um, and so it kind of increases the the final performance and look of the fi- of the yarn. What we did with Jonathan was... Um, intentionally, you know, because Colorado, Wyoming, these kind of climates, we have a, the rustic mountains, the, yes. the era, um, we created a rustic yarn. So we intentionally mm-hmm. leave in the Nepton pills. And ah. so you, you give a little extra texture to the yarn. Yeah. Character. Uh, a little character. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of fun to see that. So you still have a soft handle, um, but a yarn with a bit of character, which is fun to yeah. get. Well, and it's fun to work with. Yeah. I, I like, I like more rustic yarns. Right. Um, you know, especially like a yarn with with a little bit of like hair structure still left right, in there, like right. you know, dual coated yarn, like yep. lopy kind of thing. Love sure. it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I also love a naturally heathered yarn myself. Yep. Awesome. So, uh, when you're sourcing large quantities for your own spinning runs, where are you? Are you like getting them from specific? Uh, ranchers or are you buying on the wool market um we typically go directly to the ranch and the main awesome. reason is um we off we created what's called a producer program in our mill and so mm-hmm. we don't buy the fiber right when it's shorn yeah. um we'll pay for it when we use it and so okay. we offer free warehousing and storage for the producers oh, in this that's program great. and then we give them a premium over the market value for their fiber yeah so on a given year it could be a, a 30 or 40 percent premium and we're at a baseline. We never lower our baseline premium. And so if the market does rise above our baseline, we'll try and match the market. That's but great. it gives a lot of stability to that rancher. Yeah, um, and they know that, that their clip is going to be purchased and that their yeah. clip is going to be purchased at a good price. Because the, the wool market routinely undervalues fleeces. <laughs> right. Um, at least at least from the mind of a spinner. Right. Yeah. So you you're working with these ranchers are they generally um producing fleeces all of one breed generally um so we'll, we'll pick ranchers based on the breed that they're raising and so we'll do a lot of breed specific yarns so we'll pick you know a rambolet a mm-hmm. cormo a targi a columbia a corridale we'll pick a ranch that has that breed and then we'll do a lot of selection to determine a ranch that uh, meets our kind of criteria for long-term sustainability yeah. so we're looking for a ranch that has has and is implementing new practices on the ranch scale to be sustainable in the long run. Yeah. Uh, management practices, uh, sheep handling practices, yeah. 
Um, and, and we want a rancher who's also really focused on helping the industry as a whole. So yeah. we want someone who's involved in their sheep association, mm-hmm. um, their wool growers association, trying to actively grow and, and support their own industry yeah. um, for 20, 30, 50 years down the road. That's great. With any of the smaller producers, do you just warehouse their clip uh, until you have enough to do a good size production run that would be uh, economical? Yeah, it, it kind of depends again. If we're doing a really unique breed that we might do a, a limited special edition run. Yeah. So um, we just did last year a, a run of Romney from a local producer. Nice. And it's probably, you know, 100, 100 pounds of fiber is about all they have on their facility. Yeah. And it's enough for us to do a limited supply yarn run with that. Um, but for most of our stock yarns, we're going to need about 400 pounds minimum from yeah. the producer. Um, just to make it makes it worthwhile for us to go through the process, trace that fiber, and also do all new labeling yeah, um, that for that sense. new ranch. That's yeah. great. It kind of it's kind of fun. So we get a lot of unique interaction with ranchers and producers, and I try and make it out to shearing um, with all of our main producers. I try to get out there during shearing time just to get my eyes on those fleeces before they're put into the bags yeah. and. It's a good good working relationship we That's have with awesome. the ranches. So um, the importance of having ranchers that are that are really focused on the health of their sheep and you know progressing the breed and stuff like that. I imagine that you're going to get um, you're going to get really healthy fleeces. Yeah, that's the goal. And, you know, the better quality fleece is coming off the animal, um, the better quality yarn we can make once it yeah. arrives. And so working all the way back to the ranch scale um, to implement good practices. One of the, the things that we, in Wyoming particularly, we've done paint branding a lot. So a lot of the sheep have their, their brand is, is yes. painted on the back. Well, you put some paint on some really nice fiber. Yeah. And so we work with the ranchers to either eliminate paint or do really small brands. And yeah. so it, it just helps prove the, the quality of the fiber coming sense. through. Um, does most of the paint usually like come off in the washing process? It, you know, there's paints that are marketed as scourable okay. paint. But even if you talk to the large facilities, um, so say Bowman in Texas or Chargers in, in North Car- South Carolina, uh, scourable paint, paint is kind of a misnomer uh, and you're always going to get some <laughs> scout paint going through the wash line so even yeah. at the big facilities they're going to go through and try and pick okay. that out if they see it going through yeah um so do you get a bunch of ranchers that coat their fleeces usually only on the small scale and it's Got usually it. for uh custom processing where a rancher will send me their own fiber yeah like a hobby flock kind of thing uh, rather than a like big a production flock. correct that makes yeah. sense and it's it's really fun to see that you can get the same breed out on a ranch or a range, mm-hmm. and then that same breed from someone who, you know, had the ability to coat yeah. their animals. Well, because you have to keep a really close eye on the animals. They can get their coats yep. caught in fences. They can, so you couldn't really, like, it's just not scalable to do it with a giant flock. Right, right. But it's, the the quality you can get from coating and really taking that extra care is pretty neat to see with the producers who do send in coated fleeces. Yeah. Um, Oftentimes, you don't even have to go uh, – a semi-worsted yarn where we don't comb it mm-hmm. may look combed just because they don't have weather tips on the fiber. Yeah. Uh, so the, the fibers are just stronger uh, along the whole length of the fiber. There's not a lot of vegetation, yeah. and you can just get a really good, smooth-looking yarn. That's great. Do you guys also supply, then, your breed-specific yarns to dyers all over – we do. We're, we're just kind of branching out in that now. Yeah. Uh, the industry, and you've probably seen it, Miriam, yourself, in the past 10 years, um, breed-specific 10 years ago wasn't really oh, a, yeah, a it hot wasn't topic. a thing. 
and so breed specific is becoming more of a of a hot commodity kind of in the industry. Mm-hmm. It's fun because I you get to it. experience different breeds um, when you're hand spinning or you're knitting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we are branching that out more. Um, it, it's hard to find some of your unique breeds, the quantities we would need to create a cost effective. Yes yarn um and so usually we'll do limited edition runs of breed specific For we do uh, people or that kind of yeah. thing yeah we did start the yarn club last year where we'll send a, a specific breed or a specific ranch and we'll do a new, a new ranch or new breed every other month oh, that's and fun. so it's a, it's a nice it's a way to get a small quantity limited batch yeah out in the hands of knitters that's awesome yeah yeah i'm a fan i'm a fan of uh of breed specificity yeah um, it's just, there's so much variety in the wool world that, you know, like to, to lump all wool together is just absolutely insane. <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> when you've got, when you've got a range from like, you know, a Rambouillet to like a Lincoln long wool that has yeah. curls, 12 inch curls, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's just crazy. Yeah. And that's, a fun, you know, people think of wool and they think of everything that deals with wool is just generic wool, yeah. but all the different breeds, all the different properties and performance characteristics and i think long term i think in the next you know 10 15 20 years we're going to see a lot more specialization in using different breeds for specific projects i hope so because they they definitely have um you know like if you if you're looking for a hard wearing sock use a longer wool right (laughs) yeah you know merino wool is not honestly ideal for for knitting hard wearing socks (laughs) yeah and considering that there that there are so many breeds, you know, supporting breed specificity means that you can support smaller ranchers who who you know are who really love that breed, who know about that breed, who you know have spent their lives dedicated to that breed. Right, and you know, and that's the USDA has published a lot of uh, literature showing that the future trends in the wool industry are towards smaller flocks, less than a hundred head, mm-hmm. and. You're going to get more diversity of breeds, um, crossbreeds, and a lot of more unique characteristics uh, on that smaller scale operation. Well, and with a smaller flock, it would be easier to make a breed change, like, you know, a a, like crossbreeding situation, you know, and have a whole flock of of some kind of new hybrid. Yeah. the, The turnaround would be faster. Right. Yeah. You know, to get a full flock, you know, of yeah. of a of a crossbreed. That's interesting. Well, thanks for talking Uh, to me, Ben. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes and the giveaway for the Colorado Pure Fingering. I'm all but done with the first season's recording, so I'm really turning my attention to what I want the second season to be. This first season has really circled around yarn dyers, frankly because they're the people that I know the best. A lot of the first season's guests have been people that I've known for years and people that I consider my friends. But now that I'm more comfortable with my voice and this podcast niche, I'm really looking forward to branching out to talk to sheep ranchers, cotton growers, and mills. So watch this space. I'm going to need some help meeting these goals. I'm really excited about it, and I hope that you will be as well. And seriously, thank you. Thank you for all the support you've given me and Yarn Stories already. You can follow the podcast on social media via Facebook, search for Yarn Stories Podcast, Twitter at Yarn Stories Pod, or Instagram at Yarn Stories Podcast for updates and pretty pictures. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. I'll be back in two weeks talking to Neil Pace of Woo Sheeps. 
Bye. Hey, babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet? 